Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, we talk with Mayor Fred Eisenberger about Council's decision to opt in for an external report of that buried report on the Red Hill. An Ontario court has turned down a request to overturn the decision to cancel the basic income pilot. Also, wounded and injured soldiers have now been given the option to postpone filing disability claims until the Pension for Life plan is implemented. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It was a, uh, a busy week at Hamilton City Hall, uh, especially dealing with the issue of the Red Hill Valley uh, traffic uh, situation. Uh, the the report, of course, that we found out and has never presented to council. You know the background on all this stuff now. And a long, and I mean long, meeting by Hamilton City Council on Wednesday uh, determined that they were actually going to try to move ahead and get some sort of an inquiry going. Joining us to uh, add some clarity to this now is Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger as he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Great to be with you, Bill, as well. Uh, I hope you had a little chance to get some rest at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. That's, I, I don't think anybody bought into that when they got elected that it was going to be that long. That uh, Part of it was cl- closed door, and I understand you can't talk an awful lot about this. Maybe you could give us a, a, a kind of a thumbnail sketch, Mr. Mayor, and what council is trying to do here and where you're going next. Well, thanks, Bill. And uh, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to catch up on this bit of sleep. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I'm, I'm here this morning at the airport uh, announcing a major expansion of the Kelowna flight craft, which uh, is going to employ three times as many people, up to five 500 people here. So it was an early morning start, but uh, I'm up to the challenge and, uh, you know, look forward to uh, continuing to do the good work that we uh, need to do. On the uh, on the investigation side, I think what we came out of uh, that long discussion, and, uh, you know, it's a rare time that we get into that level of uh, Debate, but uh, came out of it with uh, a direction that we all agree with, it needs to be an independent and external investigation. So that's a that's a given. That's a, that's confirmed by uh, this city council, appropriately so. And then the question becomes, uh, what does that look like? And there, are, you know, there are a number of options that are available on that uh, side, all the way from, you know, our own uh, internal, which is not going to happen. Uh, uh, you know, auditor general who has you know significant powers to do this kind of an investigation and may very well continue on. Uh, but uh, but beyond that, uh, other options in terms of uh, how you investigate this, uh, you know, do, do you bring in a retired judge? Uh, do we go all the way to, to the judicial inquiry? Uh, and uh, and then knowing and understanding the scope and uh, understanding the overall time frame and cost. And I think one of the issues uh, that certainly has been, um, you know, part of the challenge is, uh, you know, how long is it going to take and uh, what kind of costs is it going to incur? Now, some would say, you know, hang the cost. Uh, we need to we need to do as thorough a job as possible. That's what everyone wants. But I think it behooves this council to be sure that uh, we get the best advice, so that we 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 pick the best path that uh, provides that kind of independent expert uh, analysis of this uh, to make sure that we uh, first of all never have it happen again, and secondly uh, to ensure that uh, the road uh, continues to be a safe and functioning road. Let's talk a little bit about where you want to go on this and where council wants to go. Now, you've been pretty consistent about this, Mr. Mayor. You've wanted an independent inquiry ever since you heard about uh, this report and and you wanted to get some answers on this. Uh, The motion put forth by Councillor Clark the other day talked about a judicial inquiry. Uh, That's, I guess, as you mentioned, still an option, but it seems as if some of your council colleagues have kind of backed away from that and want to look at something else. Why? Well, I think they're 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 analyzing. You know, what level of uh, detail do, do we need to get into? How much time is it going to take, and what kind of cost is going to be incurred? And you know, a judicial review. Uh, you know, depending on the circumstance, and we're 
I don't think we're talking, you know, things of illegality. I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, Mississauga, and there was some question about, uh, you know, property exchanges, mm-hmm. and dollars that moved back and forth between uh, Hazel McCallion's son and uh, how he was connected to the organization. So ta- talking about potential criminality, that's not what we're talking about here, I don't think. And so we're trying to make sure that we are measuring uh, the uh, the level of uh, investigation relative to the uh, the importance of the issue, super important issue. And if I were a uh, family member that lost uh, a family member on the on the expressway in, in an accident, or I've had a fender bender, I, I I fully understand where their minds will go automatically. I would, I'm sure, would be in exactly the same position. And I, I a great sympathy for you know the, the the pain and hurt that this is causing because we're revisiting some tragic events in their lives. Uh, but I think uh, you know the the importance is that we uh, we get to the bottom of how and why and uh, make sure it never happens again. And if if there's uh, you know a level of uh, inappropriate action that uh, that uh, rises out of this, then there's another process that could look after that. There really are two issues here, and you just touched on both of them. And one of them, of course, is the condition of the road and whether or not it's safe. And I know that seems to be the predominant issue with a lot of the feedback we've had here on the show over the last couple of days. But the other issue, of course, is much more, I guess it's kind of an inside baseball thing, but but it goes to the way that City Hall is supposed to work. Staff members, well, we can only, I guess, conjecture at this point, seemingly deciding, no, council doesn't need to see this sort of thing. And, and there's, a, there's a, I guess, a, a concern about exactly how that protocol is supposed to work. And I know some people try to conflate those two issues, but uh, they're really two separate issues. The inquiry, uh, the way I'm reading it, Mr. Mayor, is not really about the, the, the safety of the road. It's about how things are no. working at City Hall. Right. Yeah, well, exactly. And and that's uh, that's a primary importance. And, you know, and I would say City Hall, 99.9% of the time, uh, you know, is working exceptionally well. In this particular instance, uh, somehow a report that uh, that casts some doubt on the uh, the quality of the friction of the road, uh, you know, didn't rise to the level or wasn't followed through on for whatever reason. You know, there are, there are, we have, you know, we hire talented people to uh, to do a lot of this work. We don't see all of the reports, and rightfully so. We, we should not be micromanaging the organization, but when there are reports of this kind of significance that cast some doubt on the, uh, you know, the functionality of a, of a roadway, Surely that either needs to be you know, brought to a higher level or it needs to be uh, analyzed further to determine uh, you know, what the conclusive uh, you know, uh, recommendation might be. And that, uh, in this case, doesn't seem to have happened. So that's certainly a concern, and uh, I want to make sure that people understand that uh, you know, out, of, out of the hundreds and maybe even thousands of reports that are commissioned by our staff to do their everyday work in terms of construction or uh, facility building or road maintenance or sewers, uh, you know, we don't see a lot of those reports. We uh, we work at the higher level. And in this particular instance, the concern is, on behalf of council, that this one was significant enough. Why is it that we that it wasn't brought to the attention of senior management? Uh, or, 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 or did it? And why is it that it didn't come to city council as an area of concern that needed uh, more attention? Well, and that's, I think, one of the major concerns that, that I've heard, and, and frankly that I share, I think, with an awful lot of, uh, of, of the people in this community, is uh, there was a debate going on, as you recall, Mr. Mayor, about the safety of that road because of the number of collisions and, and sadly, the number of fatalities. And you would have thought that whoever had eyes on that report 
would have said, you know what, this is probably germane to that conversation. I should introduce this, but nobody did. That's true. That, that seems to be true, uh, Bill. That uh, you know, obviously, there's uh, you know professional engineers that are uh, they're working a lot of this uh, this work, and they they do some analysis and evaluation, and uh, you know they have a professional engineer stamp, and uh, you know I think in in some instances they make uh, they make judgment calls on these things, and you know one would uh, you know I think it'd be reasonable to to question the judgment call on this one. Um, uh, I think we uh, we're all in agreement on that, and certainly uh, city council is of the same view. Wondering why? Why would why would one not either follow through and do more investigation if it's deemed to be inconclusive, or at least raise it with the next level of uh, authority, uh, you know, senior management, city manager, or otherwise, to uh, to to take it the next steps to get to some sort of conclusive answer on this. You know, I, I, you know, I think uh, the, the recent analysis that was done by SEMA, I don't know what SEMA, you know, stands for, to be honest with you, but it's a company that does this kind of assessment, has done many assessment uh, uh, projects for us on the expressway, has indicated, based on all the information that they looked at, that the road is functional, and, uh, you know, if, if people are operating on this road at a, at a safe and reasonable speed, I think 90 kilometers is that number, uh, then uh, they shouldn't have any issues beyond uh, other things that might cause an accident, whether it's distraction or, or you know, a whole range of things. Uh, and and, and, and in, uh, erring on the side of caution, uh, the staff recommended to drop it down even further to 80, just to ensure that between now and when the road gets resurfaced, that uh, we're taking every precaution available to ensure that uh, there is safety uh, as much as we can build into it uh, on the road. Uh, one would argue that, you know, there isn't a road made in, in the province of Ontario and in Hamilton today that you can deem safe. I mean, the moment you get in a car and you get uh, get onto a road, you're you're in a hazardous situation. But surely we have to have some analysis done that to determines whether the surface is, uh, you know, up to par, whether the, uh, the barriers are being uh, appropriately placed, whether the lighting is appropriate, and all of those steps. Were, uh, were have been evaluated, and clearly uh, some of the information didn't rise to the level of the decision-making process uh, higher up the up the food chain. So, I, I we all have those questions, and uh, I want answers to those questions, and that's why we will do a, an in, independent investigation. And uh, you know, in a few short weeks, we'll uh, get some expert advice on what that should look like, and then uh, we'll collectively move forward to make sure that it's an impartial, independent uh, look at what happened, why, and let's make sure it never happens again. One of the, uh, the, I guess, more contentious points uh, when Councilor Marula was on the show, I guess it was a week ago, last Friday, uh, and he he, yep. he he drew our attention to, a, I guess it was a meeting from 2015, there's a video of it, and I'm sure you've seen it now, Mr. Mayor, because it's kind of, it's gone viral once again, uh, where right. he was questioning city staff about uh, the condition of the road, uh, and, and they were saying, no, it not only meets standards, it exceeds standards, this is fabulous. Somebody had seen this report, though, and, and did not bring that into the conversation, that, wait a second, there are some concerns about that. And they said nothing about that. And, and that's, I think that's problematic for an awful lot of people to know that, hey, that report was out there at that stage, and, and it was never referenced in that discussion. Exactly right. So, you know, some, uh, some video evidence of, uh, you know, certainly council questioning uh, some of the concerns that were being raised in the broader community and, uh, you know, our staff, some staff saying, uh, you know, unequivocally that, uh, you know, there's nothing to worry about. Everything is fine as long as you, uh, you know, continue to operate at, uh, at reasonable speeds. Knowing now that that, uh, that other report was out there, uh, that certainly puts all of that into question. And you wonder why would they would make those kind of unequivocal statements when uh, there was some doubt. 
you know, and one as a professional engineer, and I'm not one of them. Uh, you know, you certainly rely on their uh, their good work and their judgment to uh, to make sure that we're you know doing the right things as a as a committee and council, and uh, that we're not uh, misleading anyone. And uh, you know, based on that information that you just uh, cited, I mean, there seems to be some question about uh, what they said and what was actually happening in the background. And uh, you know, reasonable reasonable people would uh, would say why. Why would that actually happen? Why would that occur? Why did did it not rise to another level? Why was if if there was deemed to be some inclusivity in that? Why did they not take it to another test and uh, determine some sort of uh, final, you know, recommendation on the, the friction uh, friction issues that uh, that seem to be somewhat inconclusive? So, I we are we're all asking the same question, and we all we all want the answer. Why why did that happen? And let's make sure it never happens again in that way. Let me ask you, if I could very quickly about process, Mr. Mayor. Uh, the yep. the council decision, as I, as I see it from that marathon meeting you had the other night, uh, is that you want to have a legal opinion, and you're going to wait thirty days until you get that. Uh, but at the end of the day, is is council actually going to have any any say in exactly who's going to do this? I mean, obviously this is going to be determination. Uh, when we talked to some people earlier this week, legal experts about this, uh, they said yep. the process for getting a judicial inquiry is to simply put a request into the Ontario courts. They will appoint somebody. It, it sounds to an awful lot of us, Mr. Mayor, as if council still wants to have hands-on and decide how this is going to proceed and what parameters they're going to use and who's going to do it. Well, I, I don't think that's true. I th- although, you know, uh, one would get some expert advice in terms of determining the scope and how, how uh, you know, the, the process would, would unfold. And I think that that is not an unreasonable request. I mean, uh, you know, you, you need to look before you leap. Uh, you know, the worry is that uh, this could lead into, uh, you know, a 4 or $5 million inquiry on, uh, you know, God knows everything else, when uh, you really need to define the, the scope and the parameters of what you're looking at. And I think that's not an unreasonable uh, position to be in. And, and, we'll, and the outside, we'll, we're, we're going to look for an expert in this field to make sure that an independent person will, uh, will make the assessment as to, uh, you know, what the right way to go is. And, and that it, it is not tainted by any, any hands from the city of Hamilton that might be seen to be interfering with uh, determining, uh, you know, how this needs to unfold. So I think that's a, that's a, a high-level concern for council. We want to make sure that there's no perception of uh, bias or no perception of, you know, anyone uh, steering the process inappropriately. And, and we want to ensure that uh, that someone with uh, outside eyes that uh, are not necessarily connected to the city of Hamilton can look at this and say, uh, in, in this circumstance, this is the best way to go. Will the public be able to see this report when it's finally done? Absolutely. Of course. I mean, there. Uh, you know, we uh, we. You know, obviously, we got a lot of legal advice uh, in that uh, long marathon meeting. I mean, it was a purely a discussion between counsel and our, our solicitor. Uh, you know, rightful questions were being asked, and, and in all of the areas of the legalities around this, and you know, there are many facets to this. You can, I'm sure, you can imagine. And so, uh, you know, we want to be sure that we're uh, we're doing the right thing, and I think uh, I think we're on the path to doing that. And I'm uh, I'm confident that uh, this council and Myself and uh, and our leadership want uh, what everybody else wants, which is let's find out uh, impartially and uh, you know and without uh, without any bias, some sort of a process that uh, that will allow a, a good solid review and that that conclusion will will appear to be fair, reasonable, and and untainted by any any city of Hamilton hands. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you.
You betcha. Take care. Let me uh, take a break here in just a couple of seconds. And I think that's one of the major concerns here is, is, is yes, we want to get all that information as the mayor articulated, but at the same time, uh, we, the public, need to see that as well. Uh, because I know that there's some concern about some other reports that are being done and it's a matter of, well, it's going to go to this department and they'll edit it and maybe you'll get a review. No, we want to see the whole thing, the whole finding from whomever is going to do this thing. And it sounds as if that's the way it's going to be. That's that's good. That's a good uptake on that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, some unfortunate news for an awful lot of people that are on the uh, guaranteed income program, the basic income program. The, can- the, the project, of course, that uh, was canceled by the Ford government. Uh, the Ontario court has now ruled that they uh, cannot actually make a ruling on this. So, I mean, it's been tossed out of court. Uh, Tom Cooper is the director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. He's uh, with us here in studio to talk about this. Uh, not a great news story for you. No. Hey, Bill. No, it's certainly disappointing for uh, for ourselves, for the more than 4,000 basic income participants here in Ontario. We had... Uh, we had some hope, um, although it was always going to be an uphill slog, um, but uh, the court decided that it did not have the jurisdiction. Uh, and that's an interesting distinction, by the way. They did not say, yeah, the policy's okay. Yeah. They simply said, it's not in our, our wheelhouse. We can't do anything about this. Exactly. And uh, Mike Perry- So who, it still sucks. They just can't do anything <laughs> about it. Yeah, exactly. Mike Perry, who is the uh, lawyer who took this on pro bono- um, uh, he's a he's a lawyer from non practicing lawyer actually uh, from from Lindsay, and you know in in the face of this incredible adversity, uh, he took it on. Uh, has really uh, spent hours upon hours uh, building this case over the last six months. Um, but I don't think it's a surprise. It's very rare. Uh, from my understanding, I'm not a lawyer, but it's very rare for courts to overturn government policy of this sort, even though they didn't like it. And the justices made it clear um, during during the hearing, during the judicial review, um, that this sucked, uh, in your words. <laughs> but uh, that's a legal term. I don't know if you've heard yeah, that before. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, it leaves it leaves the 4,000 basic income participants uh, in a very precarious position. Um, we know the pilot will wrap up by the end of March, and at that point, uh, we know people will be forced to make some very tough choices in their lives. Some will have to go back to social assistance programs if those are the programs they came from. Uh, many of the pilot participants had disabilities, and so they'll be returning to uh, woefully inadequate incomes on on. ODSP Ontario Disability Support Program, but we also know that thirty-five of the part thirty-five percent of the participants were out there working. They were working um, maybe one or two or three or four part-time jobs, trying to cobble together enough to to make ends meet. They just weren't earning enough at their jobs to move themselves or their families out of poverty, and so they'll be going back to that reality as well. If they can find work, yeah, assuming there's work, and and many of them, uh, most of them I talked to, continued working. Uh, through the basic income pilot. And for them, it was really a supplement that helped with the high costs of, of rental housing and food and, and other critical costs in people's lives. Um, and uh, so we'll have to see. Uh, there will be uh, a, a report coming out, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, that'll uh, do a bit of a snapshot of uh, some of what those basic income partic- participants experienced over the first year. Um, so we're looking forward to reading that and, and seeing uh, really how basic income affected their lives. Now, this isn't the government evaluation because they can that. Yeah. Uh, they threw that 
down the, in the trash heap, uh, along with all the other money that has already been invested in this. Well, I mean, why would they go ahead and actually have facts to actually <laughs> exactly. base their decision on? I mean, just just kill the thing before actually facts come out, right? Exactly. So uh, an impartial, independent group of researchers did uh, did I look to the basic income participants to ask them uh, some key questions. And, and so we'll be uh, seeing some of those responses in the next little while. The other element to this too, and you've touched on it briefly here, is the cost of this. And, and we've talked about the human cost, and, and that's real, and, and that's not to be dismissed, of course. But there's a cost here to, to people that were on this program uh, that's actually going to come, what's going to be a cost to the government? As you say, social service costs. I mean, this this was a, a win-win situation in as little time as this program was actually in place because it was getting people off of those social assistance roles and giving them yeah. a hand up to so they could be on their own. Now they fall right back into that, that as you mentioned, that quandary that they've been in for God knows how long. Yeah, and, and people were stabilizing their housing. And we know it's far more cost effective to keep people in affordable housing than it is to deal with homelessness once it becomes a reality. And and for 8% of pilot participants, they were, they were in that reality of homelessness before they entered into the pilot. Now, will they be going back to that once the pilot ends? I, I would bet, you know, some of them will be. And that's going to be an incredible cost. We also... In our conversations with pilot participants, and you've talked to them as well, Bill, mm-hmm. uh, when they've come into studio, many reported uh, that they were feeling a lot better. Their health was improving. And uh, as we, you and I have talked about many times in the past, poverty is certainly a key precursor of poor health. And people who are experiencing poverty are far more likely to uh, to get sick, uh, to suffer from um, disease, uh, certainly mental health illnesses, and and those costs to the healthcare system are huge, and and the, that's a direct uh, cost to taxpayers. Um, that you know, we we saw some savings realized through this basic income pilot. Um, what will happen? We're not sure, um, but uh, certainly it's going to be very, very difficult for uh, for people to maintain good health on on really woefully inadequate incomes that social assistance provide. Well, and part of the double whammy here is that uh, if they do have to fall back, and I'm, 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 you know, as you're saying, many of them probably will have to go back onto social assistance programs. Uh, those proposed cuts or increases for the social assistance have also been cut off. Yeah. So, so they're they're deeper in the hole than they were before the program started. Now. Yeah, and certainly with cost of living increases, yeah. and particularly the cost of rental housing uh, jumping up significantly. I th- I, th- I think over the last couple of years, we've seen a twenty percent spike in rental housing here in Hamilton. Um, and yet social assistance rates have only gone up 1.5%. And, and so people are falling further and further behind. And that's why we're seeing so many people on social assistance needing to go to food banks because they can't afford to eat. Um, they're going hungry. And, and so thank, thank goodness we have great community agencies in this town. Um, and I'm sure the same exists in Lindsay and in Thunder Bay where the other pilot participants live. Um, but this is going to be a significant social and economic cost to people. One of the things that, that really rankled me I, when Minister McLeod made this announcement and uh, uh, at her justification, I use that term loosely, uh, for, for canceling the program, was she said the province couldn't afford to do this for everybody who's on social assistance. And that, that was never the case. No. It, was nev- it was a pilot program in three communities, four communities, I guess. Uh, it had, it, there was no 
t- discussion at all about making this a province-wide program. They were supposed to gather data and then make a determination. I mean, th- you know, the, the way that they characterized this was so untrue and I think so unfair to the people that were on the program and really, I think, misled an awful lot of the public to say, oh, I guess, yeah, that's a huge cost. Yeah. It, w- it wasn't supposed to be and never was. Yeah, it, it was a, a research experiment. At its very heart, it was a research experiment. And we were testing the idea of basic income to see if people could stabilize their housing, to see if they would eat healthier, to see if uh, their social inclusion would improve, if mental health would improve. And and we were starting to see some of those results. But um, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think the narrative changed uh, when the new government was elected and they really, uh, they moved the yardsticks. It was no longer about researching this social policy, which could seriously become a critical social policy of the 21st century. Uh, But it was never intended to roll out province-wide. It was seeing how basic income could work in a modern society, particularly when you're looking at the change in in the workplace. Uh, We know precarious employment is is a reality, far more so than it was 40 years ago when the first basic income experiment in Canada took place in Manitoba. Um, We know lots of people aren't able to get full-time work. Lots of people uh, have to work those two or three part-time jobs to make ends meet. And with automation and uh, robotics and and the potential of you know automatic tellers uh, at the grocery store and and um, certainly we've seen uh, seen this happen in the financial sector as well with uh, uh, bank branches closing up and and uh, really setting up chains of of interactive uh, computers uh, that uh, that customers can use. We know there's going to be far more automation in the future. So how as a society are we going to grapple with that uh, and ensure that people have a financial foundation so that they continue to get their basic needs, survive, but also keep the economy rolling as well. So what are the next steps here? I mean, obviously the government's not going to backtrack on this. They've made their decision. The courts have now said, look, we can't do anything about this. Sorry. Uh, there was some discussion, uh, I guess, some months ago now, Tom, that maybe the federal government was going to pick up the ball. Now, they've said they don't want to do that, but uh, there was, I, I guess, the, the corollary to that was to say, yeah, but we may start our own program, Yeah, uh, maybe on a test program. Have you heard anything more about that? Uh, we know there's going to be a budget in a couple of days. We, Yeah, we, we do, and uh, we're continuing to advocate vigorously. I think if the federal government is serious about running a national basic income test, um, I, I think a, sh- a show of, of support, a show of good faith would be to pick up the Ontario pilot. We already have 4,000 people uh, who've been involved. They entered into this project in good faith. They were willing to provide their information and, and be part of the evaluation. And then they were cut off at the knees uh, really by uh, by a government that lied during the provincial election um, when they said they would continue uh, to run this basic income pilot. I think the federal government has a responsibility to step up, to intervene, to rescue this pilot project. And Philosophically, they're on side with this. Yeah, and I think so. I, I think the challenges probably are are in working with the provincial government because right now the provincial government has all the data. We don't know who the pilot participants are unless they told us they were participating in the pilot. Um, the provincial government has all that personal information. Uh, so there would be. Really, sure they still have it? it, it <laughs> I, I would it, hope it so. It didn't get tossed in the blue box that they <laughs> made the announcement, did it? Ho- hopefully not. Um, but they would, they would have to uh, collaborate with the federal government in order to share this information. So I'm not sure 
how conversations like that would necessarily get started with uh, with both the uh, federal government and provincial government not seeing eye to eye on a number of issues. But this is a critical social policy. So if it can happen, I would certainly encourage the federal government, our, our local cabinet minister, Philomena Tassi, uh, to raise this at cabinet. Um, I, I think it's a win-win for the federal government. We can continue this critical research and we could also stabilize the incomes of those participants. It's it's almost tragic, though, that you know when the Wynn government introduced this, it was near the tail end of their term of, of office, yeah. uh, and and we saw what happened, obviously, in the subsequent election, and and you know on that the Ford government's done this. Uh, I, we can't read the tea leaves on what's going to happen, but now we we're you know coming up on a federal election, Dad, <laughs> so we're, we're, it's it's the same thing. This is deja vu all over yeah. again. Yeah, fool me once, shame on you. Fool well, yeah. me twice. Yeah. yeah, I mean it would be it'd be. Sh- Awful, shameful. If if this government said, "Yeah, we're going to try this," uh, but then uh, you know, at the end of their mandate, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the election? But all of a sudden, those people could have the rug pulled out from under, the, under them again. Now, that's somewhat problematic. It, it is problematic, and there's a number of issues. And if the federal government were able to step up and rescue this project, I think the participants would certainly want to see some reassurances that uh, this pilot would continue beyond. The federal election continue for the full uh, the full term of the project. Um, before the last provincial election, we had agreement from all three main political parties, and and yet one of those parties broke their campaign promise to keep it going. Um, there's still some legal possibilities as well, though. And uh, I talked to Mike Perry, the the lawyer who who brought forward this judicial review yesterday. Um, and, and Mike said a, uh, a class action lawsuit is still very much in the cards. And um, uh, it, w- it was actually uh, looking at the decision by the justices, um, I think reading between the lines, um, I, I, I think there was some suggestion that moving forward on a class action would probably uh, be the best course of action for the pilot participants at this point. But that takes time, as you know, and um, the pilot will end uh, in six weeks. And, and people's incomes uh, will drop significantly. And so if the federal government is going to step up, they have to do it now. They have to do it within the next week or two. Um, and, and certainly I think it would be a bold uh, decision on their part. It would show some courage um, from a social policy perspective. And again, a show of good faith. If they're serious about the idea of basic income and testing it, take over this project. It's here. We have 4,000 people willing to participate. And uh, I think I think it would certainly be a good news story, not only for those participants, but also for the federal government. Yeah, I mean, the class action lawsuit's kind of a Hail Mary pass. I get that. And, and it's a big if. You're absolutely right. Now, those things, you know, the chances of being successful are pretty slim at those at best. But even if it were... That might help those people that that were in the program, but it's it's still not going to help us in a greater scheme of of trying to get some determination as to whether or not that's a good program. It's going to put a couple of bucks into the pocket if they were to win it. Yeah. But the government's not going to retract and say, okay, let's put the program back together again. That's not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And again, at its heart, this was a research project testing testing the idea of basic income. And, and we weren't alone in Ontario doing this, although Ontario's pilot project was being watched all over the world, and it was. Uh, by far the most robust program of its type. Uh, We just had uh, some results from the first year of the uh, Finnish basic income experiment. And and they showed, you know, some interesting results as well. Uh, Certainly uh, pilot participants there were feeling uh, happier and healthier, and and there wasn't uh, a disincentive to work. Um, 
but it was a small program. It certainly wasn't as as robust as Ontario's program. They're talking about doing a pilot in Scotland. Uh, they're launching one, I think, this week in Stockton, California. That the mayor there, very progressive young mayor, is is leading. Uh, they're talking about doing one in Chicago as well. And um, so I think this is an idea that's spreading and. Ontario can either get with the times or or fall behind. Well, I think they've made their decision. That's that's the problem. Uh, what I'd like to see, and again, I, I guess this is on a philosophical level, somebody else pick up the ball. Maybe somewhere else in the country. Uh, there are progressive governments. Uh, this is obviously a government that just concerns itself with the bottom line. This is all about dollars and cents. They did that with the basic income project. They've done it with the autism funding. Uh, all they're concerned about here right now is cutting costs. Uh, there are other governments, Quebec comes to mind, mm-hmm. uh, that may want to say, you know what, let's give this a shot and see what we can find out. And and, and maybe, maybe if it does become a more popular program, uh, maybe the government, if not this one, a, a subsequent government here in Ontario might rethink this. It, it's possible. And I know it's certainly on the minds of the uh, of the British Columbia government as well, because you, you'll, you'll recall that's a coalition government yeah. right now between the NDP and the Green Party. And, and the Green Party has always been fairly supportive of the idea of basic income. Uh, so it was part of their election platform to run a basic income pilot. And, uh, and so right now there's a feasibility study taking place in BC looking at, at how to do that. Um, Prince Edward Island has also been very interested in, in the idea of basic income. And, and of course, they're a small province with a small population. Um, but it would certainly be very interesting in, in that uh, scenario as well. And as you mentioned, Quebec uh, has, has always been on the forefront of progressive social policies. They brought in some really uh, nifty ideas around, around child care funding and, and pharmacare. And, and so I think basic income certainly fits into that, uh, that mold of uh, experimenting with, uh, with ideas that really, I think, will, will be a precursor to an important social policy in the 21st century. So what you're saying then is notwithstanding this, uh, this court decision or this ruling, uh, this isn't over yet? No, it's certainly not over for the participants. Uh, they, want, they want to be part of the solution. They want to continue it. And uh, they want to tell their stories. And we're going to continue to help them do that. Uh, but certainly in the short term, uh, there's going to be some tough decisions to make. We're going to be holding a session on Monday, February 25th at 1.30 at the Public Library for basic income participants to talk to them about uh, about the process for transitioning back to social assistance programs, if that's what they want to do. And we'll also talk a little bit about uh, about filing taxes and 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 as well the legal case and and what's what's next from a legal perspective. So we're going to continue to keep in touch with basic income participants. We're going to continue uh, with our partners at uh, at Basic Income Hamilton and and others uh, to really tell the stories of of just how successful basic income was here in Hamilton, even if it was for a short time. Tom Cooper. Uh- Great having you on here again, and uh, we'll stay in touch as this develops. Appreciate you guys popping in here today, though. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Going to give you another chapter in the ongoing story. We've talked about the uh, federal government's treating of uh, uh, our wounded soldiers and our heroes who have served this country so very well and with great valor. Uh, it's been a, a very checkered story, of course, about the funding, about the programs that are available, about the resources that have been made available to veterans uh, suffering from PTSD and so many other different things. Now we find out that uh, it looks as if wounded and injured shoulders, soldiers rather, have now been given the option of postponing for filing for disability claims until this new program 
comes in, which is actually the Pension for Life program. That's a promise that the government had made. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Michael Blaze. Michael, of course, is the president and founder of Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Good morning, Bill. How are you? Good. Listen, this is, I guess, really kind of the the fulfillment of a campaign promise that Justin Trudeau made about four and a half years ago. Uh, But as I'm looking at this, Mike, it looks to me often as if this is really too little too late. What we have here is an abomination in motion, Bill. I mean, uh, you know, the smoke, get through the smoke and mirrors, and you will see that there are thousands of valiant Canada sons and daughters are being disenfranchised by yet another knee-jerk reaction from the government. And, you know, we're dealing today, as you know, we've been fighting for this pension for life for 2010 since I've been doing this. And although it's not equality as we planned, it is a pension for life. And uh, what they're doing, and let me let me just say, for those that are in uniform, they are allowing you to defer processing of this claim until after April 1st so that you can get the lifetime pension that they are presenting. Even though it's a 30 cents on the dollar, it's still that lifetime pension. However, if you're not in the military and you are a veteran in the stream, they are not offering you the same standard. And uh, that consequentially is you're going to get that chump sum award, and that's it. So it's uh, profoundly unfair. Uh, once again, it demonstrates the uh, you know the lack of class at Veterans Affairs Canada, whoever came up with this, to uh, to respect those in uniform at a higher level than veterans who have already paid the price, who have already been released, and who are already suffering the problems and the consequences of being in Veterans Affairs uh, Canada's care now. It's very upsetting. You know, Murray Brewster phoned yesterday. God bless him for digging into this stuff because, you know, they always say one veteran, one standard, you know. I mean, you're a valiant Canadian and we're all treated equally. But as clearly demonstrated by this incident, that's not true. And the fact that they did not tell veterans that, you know, there was and there may have been an opportunity to delay processing that claim till after April 1st so that you would get that lifetime pension, I find that very egregious, frankly, and a, a slap to the face to all veterans who are in that stream right now and deserve to have the same standard of respect as those that are serving in uniform. You pointed something out to us, Mike, a couple of times ago when you were on the show that I think maybe a lot of our listeners were not aware, and, and, and it's it's not the big problem, but it's one of the, I think, contributing problems to this. When we talk about compensation and the treatment that veterans are receiving, you're really dealing with two agencies here, aren't you? The one is, is the Department of National Defense. The other is Veterans Affairs Canada. Do these guys not talk to each other? Well, you know, uh, supposedly the uh, the minister, we have a singular minister now, Harjit Sejid, yeah. who's supposed to be in charge of both. And, and frankly, there's another slap in the face, because I do not believe that veterans should have anything to do with those who are serving today. The mission is completely different, you know. I mean, Canada's sons and daughters are on the point. They should be focused on, you know, surviving that experience, doing their best foot forward, and not worrying about uh, crotchety old men like me who've been out 30 years whining about the, the care that we're receiving. You know, they're supposed to be two separate entities, and for good reason. You know, I mean, uh, we're all Canada's sons and daughters have served. However, those who have offered great national sacrifice, I am sure that we all agree, deserve 
not only compensation and form and, uh, and, and acknowledgement of the pension for life in respect to national sacrifice, but also a dedicated agency that's familiar and can deal with the trauma of war. I mean, that's the fundamental problem. You know, these kids are going in places your kids will never go. And they are experiencing trauma that your kids will never experience. And yes, we need a dedicated ministry with a dedicated minister and a dedicated deputy minister in order to deal with the many complex issues that a complex trauma, you know, deserves. And unfortunately, you know, I'm always on this show and others talking the truth to your listeners and uh, telling you how this government and the past government is failing our veterans in the aftermath of Canada's longest war. Why is this happening, though? And and I know that's kind of a loaded question, but because I've talked, Mike, you and I have been talking about this for years. I've talked to various ministers about this. I remember having Minister Fantino on back when he was uh, uh, in that portfolio for the Harper government. Uh, Seamus O'Regan was on the show the day after he was given that uh, veterans portfolio some time ago. Uh, and he made all kinds of promises, and, and I, I took him at his word and say, okay, I, he's really going to try to step up and do this. Uh, they all dropped the ball. What's going on? I know, and, you know, I mean, Mike, they always say that to me. Bill, give him a chance. Give her a chance. And I have. I'm like you. I'll take him at face value. I mean, you know, they all profess to love veterans, and they understand the trauma and travail that we're experiencing, and they all pretend that they're going to come forward and fix it, but not one. Fantino. Not O'Toole, not Hare, not O'Regan, not the uh, Jody Wilson Raymond, and the brief time that you've not. Yeah, she, won. she wasn't there long enough to do anything. No, I know, and that's unfortunate too because I have met her several times. I, I like her, frankly, because she's a bit like me. She's uh, on point. She she does what she feels is right, and yeah. I felt that if she got in that veterans portfolio and seen what a mess it was, she would do what was right because she don't care what people think. She would just do it. But unfortunately, you know, we got these issues going on, which is a great disservice to uh, our veterans community because, you know, the prime minister's knee-jerk response is to, you know, in essence, amalgamate veterans affairs and, uh, and the Department of National Defense. And I think that is a grotesque mistake that will have profound consequences, perhaps catastrophic, a matter of life and limb. Well, basically, because as you've described it, uh, as well-meaning as, as Minister Sejan may be, he's ter- trying to serve two masters here. These these are really two different protocols. Oh, he's got issues, too. I mean, you know, I follow defense uh, pretty close. And, you know, that Auditor General's report on the, on the aircraft, for example, you know, he's not doing a very good job over there. I mean, that's reality. I mean, the Auditor General's saying that. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we're talking about sexual assault still. He's saying, oh, we've got to do a better job. We've been hearing that crap for three years now. Now we got to do a better job. So, frankly, I'm not uh, I'm not too impressed on his on, on what he's done over at Vet or over at D&D, and I'm not impressed uh, or think that he's capable enough of dealing with the crisis and the scandal. Don't forget, he's involved in that Norman issue too. Yeah. You know, I mean, he'll be on trial soon. And, you know, that the entire distraction is something veterans do not deserve at this time. You know, why can't the prime minister reach into that cabinet? I'm watching him on TV now. Karen McCrimmon's right behind him. She was the parliamentary secretary. She's a veteran. She's a woman. You've got diversity there. Why is she not the minister of Veterans Affairs Canada right now at this day? 
And, you know, there's other veterans that are in the Liberal caucus that could stand up, focus on the job, not be distracted by all the smoke and mirrors and, and political drama that's occurring, and actually focus their attention on those who have suffered so greatly for this nation. Why is there, because I know you've had some discussion with, uh, I guess, some people in the department uh, as they were trying to formulate this policy, uh, Mike, it still seems as if even with this, which they're saying now is our their, their latest effort to try to you know solve this problem, it's still a two-tier system. Oh, yeah, you know, and then they, they admit it every time they fail, you know. They, they, this is the problem, you know. You mentioned Fantino. Well, he brought the deputy minister that's there today over at that time, and all the bureaucratic problems that we have had have literally, you know, contributed to the downfall of one government and maybe the downfall of another. Because, you know, it's not always the minister's fault. I'm objective here. I mean, reality is that the deputy minister, as we all know, drives the ministries. And when that deputy minister is failing, well, you know, the minister takes the fall. Well, how many more are going to take a fall for deputy minister detention, you know, incapable leadership because, you know, I admire the man greatly. He's a great general. You know, he led our troops in battle, but, you know, the proof's in the pudding. You're a crappy bureaucrat. Either resign or get someone else in there that can do the job because the reality is the very people that he led in combat are suffering because of his intransigence. And and therein lies the problem. I mean, these these are people that are being put in charge that should understand what the situation is. I mean, because they were there. They were there on the front lines. They were directing everything. They understand exactly what was going on over there. And also, I think, have a pretty decent understanding, at least I hope they do anyway, of what's happened to those, as you say, those veterans once they've come back here. Uh, yet, you know, when, when push comes to shove... The money's not there. I mean, they just had to go cap in hand to the government a couple of weeks ago to get more money for the Veterans Affairs Department. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that's a good thing because we've been working hard on getting people to self-identify and come forward and get what you're entitled from from Veterans Affairs Canada. You know, I, I consider that a, a great victory on our behalf you know, when uh, the attention has to go before committee and ask for more money to put out on disability. But... You know, the reality is that he's failing on these other levels. We have given him hundreds of millions of dollars to hire people to expedite these claims, to get things moving. I've got a friend, he's waiting a year and a half for a hearing disability. We're in mortars together. We're both deaf as post. Why do I get? And he's going through bullshit. It should have been rubber stamped, you know, within the 16-week moratorium that the Prime Minister of Canada set. And we would be moving on with uh, veterans being satisfied with the level of care that they're receiving from the Department of Veterans Affairs and not, uh, you know, always missed off at the government. Because it is negative after a while. It's not good for veterans' sight to always be fighting for what we should have just been given and what, what the Prime Minister of Canada promised us in exchange for our votes. And again, we talked about this two-tier system, and 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 again, people that are already in the system apparently don't qualify for this. I'm I'm just wondering why they're really. It's it, I guess really the, the the best way I can describe this is really being nitpicky. I mean, they're still they're they're, they're throwing nickels and dimes around like they were manhole covers. I mean, it's just they don't really uh, seem to want to fund this to the pro to the the level that it should actually be funded. No, and if there was positive leadership, both of the deputy minister and some consistency and continuity with the minister, instead of this revolving door all the time, maybe we would have what you're talking about. You know, uh, satisfied troops and, and a department that works as it's supposed to. But, you know, I mean, we, we talk about, uh, you say, well, you know, the guy was in more, and you know, yeah, that's fine and dandy, but that's not what's required here, Bill. We need a career 
a career bureaucrat that knows how to snap the whip and, and, and conform to the prime minister's directives. I mean, when I have the, you know, we fight so hard, then the new comes in, I go up there for the stakeholder summit, they have the mandate letter from the prime minister candidate, delivered, read aloud, and, and you know, none of those... None of those objectives were attained on a bureaucratic level, and yet, and yet the government does nothing about it. In fact, right now, the Tinjik's a de facto deputy minister or minister of the department because we have no minister. And, you know, Sajin, he's overdoing his NATO stuff, as he should be. Who's, who's taking care of us? Nobody. And that's the problem. You know, we need a career, career bureaucrat that knows how to make a department work, you know, supported by... Uh, you know, lesser level uh, bureaucrats that can snap the whip because, you know, when the, when the Prime Minister of Canada comes out and says, I want these cases adjudicated in 16 weeks, I promised veterans that would happen. And we're still waiting a year later. It's not the Prime Minister's fault. It's the person who's supposed to be implementing those orders. And that's the Deputy Minister of Veterans Affairs Canada and his Director of Policy. I mean, this is a no-brainer. And for the life of me, I do not understand why Trudeau and their supposedly, you know, that Tedford and, and Bucks, the brain trust there, haven't figured this out yet and made the changes that are required. What about the other, the other aspect of this? And we've, we've talked about pensions here, Mike, and that's obviously a very important part of this. But the other element of this, of course, is funding for the support programs. Uh, and, and that was woefully inadequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, this big pile of money that they just got for Veterans Affairs, is that going to do the job? Well, it'll carry us uh, to the next budget, right? You okay. know what I mean? But let's hope we're not doing this again next time because, you know, the reality is, we, you know, we all say, oh, reach out. You know, we have so many veterans that are suffering in silence, suffering alone. Uh, and now that we're doing that, and now that, you know, our organization and many other have dedicated outreach programs to, to, you know, to go to that coffee shop and have a little chat with Buddy about the pain he's feeling and get him into that system where treatment's provided. And yes, and yes, the small pension for his national sacrifices also acknowledged because it's all part and parcel you know i mean we have to bring these kids back we sent them to war they've experienced extraordinary trauma you and i will never experience and it's scarred them bad and now you know we have to have a dedicated department with dedicated policies to alleviate that pain to reintegrate them into our society and to ensure that their quality of life is not forever destroyed by the simple fact that they signed on the dotted line, that they, they stood on guard for thee. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to finish this conversation as we do most of ours, Mike, by just simply telling our listeners if uh, they're upset about this, if they want to see this, this, this wrongful policy right Call your MP. I mean, that's that's really where that's where it's got to start. Absolutely, and no, even go up higher. Justin Trudeau at Pearl.gc.ca. You know, just title veterans. I'm not happy, and refer to what I said and what you've heard today, or what you've looked up on Google. Because we need all Canadians' help now. We can't do it alone as veterans. We're suffering. We can't do it alone because our community of actually wounded veterans on behalf of this nation is so small. I mean, we're zero 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 one percent of the population. Population. And without your help, without Canadians embracing their sacred obligation and appreciating the freedom and standards that they enjoy today because of valiant young woman standing on guard for them. It only takes a second. Justin.trudeau at parl.gc.ca. And, you know, add your MP in there on the CC. Talk to them both. But do it. Because, you know, people always say, oh, Mike, you know, I'm going to do it. But do you? Do you really do it? 
Will you really take five minutes out of your busy day to stand for a veteran today? Because I sure as heck hope so. They hope so. Yeah, they've got to, and they've got to. They've got a long weekend. They can do it twice. Mike, thanks so much for this. We'll stay in touch. All right. God bless you. Bye-bye. You betcha. Mike Billy's, of course, uh, from uh, Canadian Veterans Advocacy. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.